0: is a reminder of God's overwhelming love for us. This is a season where we focus on that love and want to spend time examining our relationship with God. Jesus says in John 14, 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. As we follow Jesus's example and humbly receive his teachings, we become more aware of his loving sacrifice and trust that it will change us from the inside. Good morning, Wendland Hills. God bless you all this morning or whenever it is that you're watching this. So, we are in this Lent season. It's a time of, it's traditionally been a time of fasting leading up to Easter. Um, and I guess I want to say this. We, we just sang that song, Break Every Chain, that the power that's in the name of Jesus can break every chain. And uh, I, I'm just going to throw this out here for this Lent season. If you want to fast from something, uh, I want to encourage us to fast from anger and uh, for some of us, we're going to need the power of the name of Jesus to break the chain of that, because I think some of us are addicted to anger. Uh, the, the message this morning is, is, is just t- entitled, Say Farewell to Anger, and we'll flesh that out as we go through here. By the way, I, my name is Greg Boyd. i the teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, and as I said, it's good to see you all here this morning. Uh, say Farewell to Anger. Here's I'll just start off with this observation. Uh, And I've just become sort of mesmerized by this the last couple of weeks. Uh, It's a beautiful irony that on uh, uh, on the cross, we see the full revelation of our sin, right? It's uh, God dives down into our sin and into our curse and, and, and takes it upon himself. And the cross, the surface of the cross, reflects the ugliness of that sin. So we see the full depth of our sin on Calvary. Our sin was so severe, it required God going to this extreme to save us. So it reveals us to be sinners, but at the same time reveals us to be loved as sinners because it's God's love that leads God to dive into our humanity and our sin and our fall. And so the the cross is all about how God accommodates us, right? He meets us where we're at. He loves us as we are. But what's ironic, though, is that the same crucified Christ— Now, remember when I talk about the cross, I, I mean that the cross as the summation of everything Jesus was about, not to the exclusion of everything else Jesus was about. The cross is the through line that, that pulls it all together. And, and so the same Jesus who was crucified, who meets us where we're at, who reveals God's love for us exactly as we are, no ifs, ands, or buts, that same Jesus calls us to an ethic that is hot. It seems to us impossibly high. And The highest ideals that I think any teacher in history has ever given us. We'll see some of that here this morning. So he meets us at the bottom. But see, because God loves us at the bottom, he doesn't want us to stay bottom feeders. So he, he, he loves us too much to let us keep on being our bottom feeders. He meets us at the bottom, and that's where we have to meet each other. That's where we rally around, not at the top on some moralistic claim, but at the bottom. Because that's where God meets us. But then he loves us to the top. And he's give. we will see here this morning, he's going to give us these ideals that seem impossible to us. And here's where we just got to trust that, that God knows things we don't know. He sees a potential in us maybe we can't see. He's, he knows that his, he's able to love us into greatness, a greatness, a righteousness that we maybe didn't ever conceive for ourselves. The whole thing is—what is, is, it, it shows is that the fuel that the kingdom runs on is the love of God that meets us on the bottom. He meets us on the bottom to love us to the top, not to threaten us to the top or cajole us or condemn us or shame us to the top. That never gets us to the top. To be all we can be, it all depends on receiving and letting it be saturated with the, the love of God that meets us as we are. Okay, so now we're going to move on in the Sermon on the Mount uh, to a new section here. Well, Jesus is going to be contrasting some of his teachings with teachings that have, people have heard from the Bible and have heard from their tradition. And in doing this, what he's doing is he's unpacking this righteousness that kingdom people are to have. It's a, a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So here's what we read, starting with Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. In this message entitled, Farewell to Anger. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is defined by this kind of righteousness. And remember, righteousness is a covenantal word that basically means right-relatedness. So here, here's, here's what right-relatedness really looks like. This is Jesus now. He's going to be giving—he he, he fulfills the whole law through, by living out love, right? The, the, he fulfills the intention of the law. Well, here's his interpretation of what the real intention of the law is. Okay, so he says, You've heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that if you are angry, if you're even angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the fire of hell. Uh, Jesus is teaching, you know, the longer I'm at this, thing, the more, it never stops amazing me in terms of its radical nature. The, 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 the gospel is just radical and it's beautiful. So you've heard it said in the Old Testament, you heard it said in the tradition, you shall not murder. And if you do murder, you're liable to judgment. That means you're facing judgment. You're guilty. And in, in the case of the Old Testament, the punishment for having murdered somebody is that you must be killed. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life, that kind of thing. Well, Jesus, now, he says, that's what you've heard. It's about a behavior. Make sure that you don't do that behavior. So as long as you can check that off the box, that I haven't murdered, you're a righteous person. But Jesus says, not, not so in the kingdom. Not so in the kingdom. In fact, in the kingdom, you've got to know this. That if you're even angry with your brother or sister, you're already liable to judgment. And if you have, if you insult them in the, in the Greek, it's what's that? actually an Aramaic word that Jesus uses here. If you say raka, to a brother or sister. It's just an insulting word. It's, it's almost equivalent to flipping someone the bird today. Um, or, it, 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 so far as scholars can discern, it, it's meaning it means something like dunderhead or empty head, idiot. Uh, and, and by the way, Jesus isn't giving three different sins here. Like there's a difference between saying fool and idiot or raka. It, 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 he's naming the same sin. This is Hebraic parallelism. Uh, parallelism. He's naming the same th- sin three different times and basically the same judgment three different times. Although the last one he ups the ante by talking about the fires of Gehenna. And what he's saying here is this if you have the slightest downward look towards another person, you're looking down on them, the slightest insult, the slightest fool, the slightest judgment, you're already on the same trajectory as murder, Jesus is saying. Don't just focus on murder that you do with your body. How do you murder in your heart? How do you murder in your mind? Because if you have the slightest anger, if you have the slightest judgment, looking down, slightest insult, you fool, you're already in the danger of the, of the fires of Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is, the, you know, Gehenna is the actual word that's used for hell. It gets translated hell. But it actually refers to a literal valley outside of Jerusalem. The valley of Hanon. And, and it was uh, known as being this vile place. It's where the Canaanites used to sacrifice children to Moloch. And it was associated with all sorts of demonic stuff and with uh, sacrificial fires and things like that. It may be the case that it had turned into a, a, an actual garbage dump uh, that, that, that was burning day and night. They threw all the refuse of Jerusalem in there. Uh, although the evidence for that is later on. We're not sure if that applies to the time of Jesus or not. But either way, it doesn't matter. Uh, it, And see, in in first century Judaism, that fire was interpreted in three different ways. Some interpreted the fire of of the valley of Hanon, or the fire of hell, as being, as a metaphor, they all knew it was metaphorical, but a metaphor for uh, the kind of fire, that people will will be eternally suffering in the afterlife. So they believed in eternal conscious suffering. There were other Jews, however, who believed that the fire of Gehenna would incinerate the sinners. It, it, It annihilates them. So they returned to nothingness. And then there's still others who thought that the fire of, uh, the, the, of Gehenna, the fire of hell, was a redemptive kind of fire. It's a purging kind of fire. It, 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 it burns away the sin to, in order to free the sinner. And, and scholars debate a lot about which of these three did Jesus, you know, hold to. Uh, and we don't have time to get into that right now. But the important point to note is this. It really doesn't matter. Jesus is saying That's bad. Okay, there's, a, there's consequences for what you do. And we've always been focused on the consequences for murder because that's what society exacts from people. But in the kingdom, our, our assessment of right and wrong isn't to be governed by just uh, what society thinks is right and wrong. Jesus is here saying that the sins of the mind and the sin of the heart is as serious as the sin of the body. That, that having the judgments in your mind and anger in your mind and anger in your heart is the same as murder. He's, he's putting those two on the same level. And that seems crazy to us because surely, socially speaking, it's way worse to actually act out on murder than just to have murderous thoughts. Certainly it is. But then again, think about this. When a person actually murders, it's only because they're giving way to their murderous thoughts. Whatever they do in the body, they've already done. So you can see how from from God's perspective, and from God's perspective, the only thing that matters is what is true. From God's perspective then, the sin of the body and sin of the mind and the heart are one and the same. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. Whoa. It's important that we frame this not in the legalistic kind of way like there's a court of law up in heaven and God's the judge and he's keeping score and every time Greg has an insulting thought towards somebody or says an insulting word towards somebody, he's going to mark that down and then at the end of the age make sure that Greg gets that many spankings or something to pay back for what I've done. No, the the, the, the main Hebraic concept of judgment is not a judgment that's imposed from the outside in. That's called a judicial or a forensic kind of a judgment. The main kind of judgment that the Bible talks about, and this is certainly true of the teachings of Jesus, it's it's an organic kind of judgment where the consequences or the punishment for sin is built into the sin itself. It's a judgment of God because God wired creation this way, but it's simply the law that says you'll reap what you sow, a law of cause and effect. It's an organic so that a person's sin... The Bible often describes their, their punishment as the sin ricocheting back on the person, falling back on their head. And this is certainly true of the teachings of Jesus. The most important example of this is, I think, Matthew chapter 7. Most important example as it pertains to the topic that we're talking about here this morning, judgment. Jesus says, Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment that you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure that you get. You reap what you sow. So he's not here saying that God's gonna impose a judgment on you that's gonna parrot the judgment that you gave. No, Jesus is giving here, he break wisdom. It's in the nature of things, in the nature of God's creation. The moral arc of God's creation, that, that when you judge, you will be judged. And the measure that you give is the measure that you get. It will all come back on you. It will ricochet back on you. Which means that if you don't want to be judged at the end, and I don't think any of us do, the only way to avoid that is to refuse to judge others. And throughout the Bible, you find that our relationship with God and our relationship with other people are always parallel with one another, right? Do you want to play the judgment game or do you want to play the love game? Because what you give is what you're going to get. It will come back on you. There's consequences for that. Um, Brexy says it this way. Brexit, Cavian, my, my, my squishy hippie friend up in Canada, uh, he says that when you judge others, you're, sitting, you're setting the table for your own judgment day. <laughs> Here's the menu uh, by which I will be judged. If you don't want to be judged, then the only way to not do that is to not judge. And see, what Jesus is simply doing here is he's going back to the, the Garden of Eden and, 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 and going back to that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which as I've argued in other places, that is the tree of judgment. And it was God's loving, no trespassing sign, Genesis 3. God's loving, no trespassing sign saying, listen, humans, be like me in terms of how you love, but don't try to be like me in terms of what you think you know. Don't try to be like me in terms of what you think you can judge. Uh, I can see God can judge and love perfectly at the same time, but we cannot. For us, judgment and love are antithetical. Love is about ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself, whereas judgment is about ascribing worth to yourself at cost to another. God never does that, but we do it all the time. And so Jesus says, don't judge. And it's the original sin of the Bible, judgmentalism. Because behind every sin, there is a judgment. So in this case, murder. When you murder, you're you're, you're judging a person. You're judging that their life is not worth living. And in doing that, you're playing God. You don't get to decide that. You're playing God. And you're playing God not just because you're taking their life, but because you're judging them. And you're judging them as, as having less value than what God says they have. on the cross, God says every human being has got unsurpassable worth. And our most fundamental job as disciples is to agree with God about that. No ifs, ands, or buts. But when you murder somebody, you see you're disagreeing with God. No, they don't have unsurpassable worth. They're they're not even worth living. So you murder them. And that's bad. And Jesus is saying that that will come back on you. Uh, That's a true thing. But then he applies the same logic to anger and to insult. Uh, insulting others, calling someone a fool. You're not saying that someone's not worth living when you call them an idiot or a fool or you just think those thoughts, but you are saying that they have less value than what God says they have. God says they have unsurpassable worth, but here you are thinking you're in a position to play God and calling them an idiot or just thinking that they're an idiot, staying angry with them. See, you're violating their worth. Murder violates the worth of a person, but so does insulting them in your words or insulting them in your mind, calling them a fool. You're violent, and that's a form of violence. So we're called to put off all violence, and that means put off all the thought processes that lead to that violence, because to God, they're just two sides of the same coin. Uh, to be angry or to have an insulting attitude towards anybody is, for Jesus, the same as murder. We'll see that he says the same thing about sex uh, in a couple of weeks here. To lust is the same thing as adultery. Now, so it's, it's, you know, in terms of social repercussions, it's a lot worse to actually have physical adultery than just to think about it. Yeah, that's that. Fine. But from God's perspective, when God's only interested in truth, having actual adultery is simply the manifestation of what you've been thinking. So the root of the sin is what's happening between our ears and what's happening in our heart. It's the same as adultery. Two sides of the same coin. Sins of the mind and heart are as serious as sins of the body. We should treat our insulting attitudes, our judgmental attitudes, and our angry attitudes the same way we would treat murder. That's what Jesus is, is saying. Get rid of it. Now, when I, when, even as I'm saying that, it, it causes me to pause and, and I, I just have to go, Whoa, what if that's really true? Think about it. What if that's really true? What if anger is, in fact, to God the same as murder? What if lust is to God the same as adultery? It, it, what it means, what it means is, is, that I have to say, for, what it means is that I have been a murderer and an adulterer through much of my life. I think I probably murdered my first person at the age of 10 and probably could have the first act of adultery shortly thereafter. It's been characterizing my life. Which means, and and, and that's such a false piety thing. Like, oh, you know, I'm a murderer and adulterer, wink, wink, wink. But of course, I'm not as bad as the actual adulterers and murderers. No, the whole point of this teaching, yeah, there's a difference in terms of what society exacts, for sure. But in terms of God's perspective, it's two sides of the same coin. I am a murderer and an adulterer. and have been through much of my life. And that means I can't look down. I could not possibly look down on people who have committed adultery or murdering because I've done the same. That's why Paul gets that in Romans 2 when he says, why are you judging others when you're guilty of the same things?" Oh, you pat yourself on the back because you didn't actually do it? Well, you did do it. You just didn't do it publicly. <laughs> you do it privately in, in, in your mind. When I, when, I, when I really grasp, when I really accept that these are two sides of the same coin, I realize that I can't stand over anybody. I, I, I really, I, I, with Paul, I have to say, 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, Here is a saying that is worthy of full acceptance by everybody. That Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I am chief. That's a saying that everybody should be saying. If you're a kingdom person, be saying that saying. Of whom I am the worst. Now, of course, the, the, in terms of socially measured sin, you know, we can't all be the worst. There can be one worst sinner. But see, He's giving us the attitude that we're to have. We're to have the attitude of one who's at the bottom. And if you're at the bottom, if you're the worst of sinners, then you can't ever look down on somebody. I ca- how could I, if I've been a murderer and an adulterer through most of my life, how could I ever insult somebody? How could I ever look down on somebody? As though I'm better in any way. It, I could only look up. I could only look up at people. How could I be angry at somebody else's sin when, I've, when, I'm, when I realize what a sinner I am? Uh, see, so I, the, I, I'm the worst of sinners, and so are you. But that shouldn't lead us into a sort of self-loathing. Uh, it, sometimes people get into this kind of false piety, where they're like, "Oh, I, there's nothing good about me. I'm altogether scum. I'm snail's breath. I'm, 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 I'm just, you know, excrement. I'm putrid. I'm altogether worthless, or whatever. And they think they're complimenting God and saying that. Don't go there. Don't go there. You see. The cross does reveal that you're a sinner. It, it does, but, but it also reveals that as a sinner, you're loved. You're loved with an unsurpassable love because God sees that you've got unsurpassable worth because you do have unsurpassable worth. And so despite the fact that you're a sinner and despite the fact that I'm a sinner, the love of God is there. And so we can't be loathing ourselves if we've got unsurpassable worth. We're supposed to be, agree with God on all of his opinions, including the one that says that we have unsurpassable worth despite our sin. So we can't go into self-loathing, but we also can't go to the other extreme and, and say, well, you know, I guess if I've been doing it all my life, it's too late to stop now, and God loves me anyway, so I guess my murdering and adultery isn't that big of a deal. No, it, it is a big deal. There's an urgency to Jesus' words here. It's a big deal. God loves us too much to stay wallowing in the, the bottom. He wants to love us to the top, and this is what the road to the top looks like. Uh, The same cross that tells me the depth of my sin also reveals to me that I'm, I'm, I'm more than my murdering and I'm more than my adultery. In fact, the cross that reveals the depth of my sin, that same cross reveals to me that uh, despite my murdering and my adultery, God sees me as having unsurpassable worth and God sees all this potential in me that I don't even see. And God sees that I've got a righteousness, a capability of a righteousness that goes beyond anything I can imagine. The same cross that reveals the depth and the ugliness of my sin and of your sin and of all of our sin, that same cross Tells us, it gives us the promise that if we'll just yield to God's love, that unconditional love given us up front, He'll grow us out of our murdering and grow us out of our adultery, grow us out of our anger, grow us out of all of those bondages, that He'll break every chain and set captives free and prepare us and equip us, make us compatible with the coming kingdom of God. That's what the gospel is all about. God in His love is going to start, He meets us at the bottom, but loves us to the top. Ah. Our job is to be yielding to that love and yielding to that spirit and growing in that direction. And so Jesus' teachings here are road signs. Are you going down the right path? Are you going the right path or are you going down the wrong path? The wrong path, well, it always has the smell of death to it. You're you're walking towards death. That's the murder. That's the anger. That's the looking down on. That's the judgment. Whereas if we're walking in the kingdom way, we're walking in this direction where we're putting off anger, putting off judgment in order to to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Which brings me to the million dollar question. Is Jesus here saying that we're, we are to be putting off all forms of anger? Because he just says, whoever's angry. He doesn't say whoever's angry for an unjust cause. He says, whoever's angry. Is that a carte blanche thing? All anger? Now, instinctively, part of me wants to say, well, of course not. Of course not. Jesus couldn't mean that. Because obviously there's some good kind of anger, Right? And the good kind of anger is the anger that good people have when they come against bad things. If you're angry at injustice, that's obviously a good thing, right? If more white people would be get angry about injustice, then maybe we'd be doing more about injustice. so, So we need more righteous people to get angry, right? Get angry at the right things. We need folks to have some righteous indignation. Now, As a preliminary word, let me just say this: that whenever something, whenever a teaching of Jesus uh, confronts, it it strikes us that obviously Jesus can't mean what he says, what he seems to be saying here. Whenever we come to that spot, be very careful. Maybe that you'll find out that Jesus doesn't mean exactly what he he seems to be saying; means something different. But often, I'm convinced that what happens is that, that that we assume what Jesus can't mean, and that dictates then what Jesus does mean. Obviously, Jesus can't mean that all forms of anger are bad, so he just must mean certain kinds of anger are, are bad. But whenever we find that it's obvious to us that Jesus can't be saying what he seems to be saying, be careful with that, because what history shows and what our own lives probably show is that it's very, very easy for us to enthrone our culturally conditioned idea of what common sense is and make it Lord of our life. And once you make your culturally conditioned uh, common sense Lord of your life, well now, all of Jesus' teaching has got to be interpreted through that grid. And they all get watered down accordingly. <clears throat> so here's the thing. For, uh, I, I've been in ministry. I started when I was 23. So it's been 43 years. Of, four to three years of ministry I've been going. Hallelujah. And the last year without any congregation present. So there's that. I'm actually starting to get used to this. Which I'll probably just by the time we go back to normal. I'll, I'll get used to this. And then having a crowd will feel weird. Well, it, here's the thing been teaching for 40 years. And for 40 years, what I was taught is what I've been teaching, and that is this. That anger is simply a natural response. When something you value gets devalued, you get angry. The degree to which what, they, what you or an object deserved, the gulf between that and what it got creates anger. So you, 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 you prize your car, and someone scratches it with some keys, and that makes you angry. Because your car deserves better than that. Now, it could be that you overvalue your car. You know, you, you shouldn't get totally just wiped out and crazy because your, oh, your car got scratched. So, so, but the problem there is that you have too much value on your car. You're, you're making idol out of your car. The problem's not anger. That's how I used to teach. And there's a lot of truth to that. I, I, I still stick to a lot of that. But, see, a, a couple of years ago, at a Crucifixion of the Warrior God conference, Bruxy was down here, and he gave a little talk in that conference. And, and he just kind of let it slip out this idea, his idea, which is, uh, he claims it's a biblical idea, that all forms of anger, all forms of anger are, are prohibited for uh, followers of Jesus. All forms of anger are, are, are not appropriate for a Jesus follower to have. Uh, there is no place, in his view, there's no place for, quote unquote, righteous indignation, righteous anger. Anger is intrinsically unrighteous. Now, uh, we had a little talk about this because that class was kind of what I've always taught. Uh, and I came to the conclusion that our disagreement was mainly verbal, which I think is kind of true, but is also an important sense. It, 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 our difference is more than that. So as I was preparing for this message, we were talking about this disagreement between me and Bruxy. And Janice, God bless her, uh, God uses her a lot in this church. And Janice says, you know, I just feel like you, you should— Rexy preached a message on this a year ago, uh, January 2020, just before the COVID thing hit. And, and she said, I think you maybe should go listen to it. And, and so you kind of know where, where you stand, where you differ, you know, because you're both leaders in this, in this Anabaptist kingdom movement here. So I did. I went back and listened to this. That's a great sermon. It's called um, uh, The Way Revisited, uh, January of uh, 2020. And I got to say, as I listened to this message and pondered this message and prayed about this message, I, I, I have come to the conclusion that my squishy hippie friend up in, up in Toronto uh, is right. Is right. Um, and the difference, well, and on one level it's just kind of verbal, on another level it feels huge and it's even had huge consequences in my life in the last couple of days since I've come to embrace this. Uh, so I'm going to share just a, a little bit of the, of the case that he makes for this and I throw in a few little uh, spins of my own. Um, I I'll, I'll, I'll say this that I, I, it seems to me that I am I'm now realizing I think I was blinded by common sense. It was, so, it, it was so counterintuitive for me to think that righteous indignation couldn't be at least sometimes a good thing that, that I, I just didn't allow the scripture to speak to me as straight as it is speaking to me. Now here's the thing. It took me 40 years to come to this and I'm being a ministry and reading the Bible a lot full time. So let's give a lot of grace space to disagree on this but I want to throw it out there for you to chew on and I believe that for some folks at least this is going to be a thing that's going to break your chains because uh, I think you've been Probably more of us than we realize are in bondage to, to anger. We live off of that. We feed off of it. It's, it's, it's our main source of energy. I want to see that chain broken. Because that is not doing you or the kingdom any good whatsoever. So here, here's a nutshell of my case. Uh, my go-to verse, my most the, the verse that I leaned the most on when I was debating Brexit was Ephesians chapter four, verses 26, 26 and twenty-seven, which read. Be angry, but do not sin. I rest my case. It's possibly angry and not sin. There it is. But then the, the, the apostle adds, but do, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil. Okay, so here's the thing. Um, it's possible to have some kind of anger and not sin. That's why Paul says, when you're angry, you don't sin. And he uses the word orge there, which just means you get hot. That's a natural thing. When something you value gets devalued, you get angry, you get hit, hot, you got orge. So that's not a sin. But then Paul says, but be careful, don't let the sun go down on your— and now he uses a different word. It's the same word with a different prefix. It's paraorge, which means something like heat down under, submerged heat. Sometimes it's translated bitterness. Because now that anger becomes a part of you, becomes a pollutant in your life. Anger has an appropriate role to play, but it's always short term. You get hot because something you value got devalued. The question is, what are you going to do with it? And Paul is saying there's only one right way to respond to anger. And this is, I learned from Broxy. Only one right way to, there's only one way to not sin when you have anger, and that is to get rid of it as soon as possible. So it doesn't seem that this is a real strong verse to support my case. It, it means that there is, you know, there's a natural impulse that happens when something you value gets devalued. That's anger. That, that, that itself is not sin. That's just a natural response. But now it, it, there's a temptation that you have to deal with. Are you going to partner with that emotion or are you going to move past that and, and rely on some other kind of emotions to fuel you in, in, in the kingdom? It's the same thing with, with, with the sexual sin. Uh, it, it, it's one thing, a natural thing to notice, oh, someone's attractive or you, you feel t- attraction towards them or you appreciate their beauty or whatever. That, that's a natural thing. Um, but now what do you do with that? And if you start to fantasize about that, now you're going into the sin territory. Now you're starting to commit adultery. Don't feel guilty about the fact that there's a pull there because there was for Jesus. He was a human being, a full human being. And he was tempted in every respect like we are. So he felt the pulls there. He just never went there with his mind or with his heart. He never indulged the anger. He never indulged the pull towards lust. But... My strongest passage turns out to be not that big of a, uh, not a great passage to sort of hang the right to have uh, a righteous indignation on. It, it doesn't support that. In case there's any doubt about this, just go down four verses later, and here's what you read in Ephesians 4. Four verses later, Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, with which you are marked with a seal for the day of redemption. That Holy Spirit's always in us, moving us in that kingdom direction, trying to, you know, Here's God's ideal. Keep on striving for that, fueling that. But don't grieve that Holy Spirit. And here's how you don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with every form of malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Put away, to walk this kingdom road, put away all malice, slander, anger. And note he doesn't qualify it there. In fact, this is what you find throughout the New Testament. Whenever there's a list of things that, and, or attitudes that we're to be putting off, anger is always included in them. Another example of this is, 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 is Colossians 3. It says, But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anything resembling this, get rid of it. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Anything like that, get rid of it. Uh, it's not doing any good. It's not appropriate for a kingdom person, and it's never qualified. So on every list of things that attitudes we're supposed to put away, anger's there without qualification. And then on every list of, of attitudes that we're to cultivate, you know this, righteous indignation is never among them. Uh, in fact, the attitudes that we're told to cultivate look to me to, like the opposite of anger— The fruit of the Spirit, for example, in Galatians 5, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, and self-control. All those are like the opposite of anger. And love is patient, and love love is long-during and persistent. It's the opposite of anger. One more passage I'll read, and that's James chapter 1. This one really got me. James says, You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Okay, so anger is going to happen. That's, not a, that, that's just a natural thing. When things you value get devalued, you, you're going to get angry. That's going to happen. But James is saying cultivate the kind of character that is slow to anger. That You don't get triggered. Don't be one of these trigger-happy, angry people. And cultivate a different kind of attitude, and that's what it is to live in love. As Christ loved us and gave his life for us. So be be slow to that. But then he says, "The the reason why I want to be slow to anger is because your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Now, why would he have to say that? Who would ever think that our anger does produce God's righteousness? And the answer is everybody who is experiencing righteous indignation. That's what righteous indignation is. I I I I am on God's side. I share in God's anger. I share in God's wrath, and 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 the the, the anger I feel is, the, is is the evidence that I care so much. But I always feel that's the thing is it feels righteous. It feels righteous. But James is here saying it does not lead to God's righteousness. It does not lead to God's right relatedness. You may think it does, but it does not. See, I, I think we've, we've been so deceived about this. I've been so deceived about this that that that. Um, there's a lot of things that go on even in church that, that that actually canonize anger. Preachers get angry all the time, get mad at those sinners. We don't get mad at our own sin, but we get mad at those sinners. And the preachers with these angry voices and just and whatever. Not noticing that that sounds kind of angry, doesn't the Bible say something about angry? Are we supposed to be this kind of angry? Um, uh, it, it, and it's in our politics. Oh, <laughs> in our politics. We are drunk with righteous indignation in our politics. Uh, it's it's. Everybody's more righteous than everybody else, and, and, the, and the hatred, and the anger, and the looking down on, and the judgments, and the you fool, you idiot, you traitor, you hypocrite. It's just thick with this. It's like it's the main thing our culture's running on right now. We have righteous indignation on steroids. As I've honestly looked at scripture, you guys, I have to conclude that Bruxy is right about this. That anger is among the category of things that we are to be purging from our life. And we're to be doing that as intensely as if it was murder, because it is violating the worth of people. We're to be as intensely against the judgments in our mind as we are against murder. The, the, an angry reaction, it may be totally natural. It may be totally understandable. By all human standards, it may be totally justifiable. I'm not disputing that at all. But for a Jesus follower, it's just that we're never supposed to hold on to it. We're never supposed to hold on to it. Um, Uh, You know, Bruxy, one time used this analogy, and I think it's a good one. He says, anger is, it's like a, it's like the light on your dashboard that goes off when your engine needs to get looked at. Something's wrong. It is a gift, actually. It's telling you that something is wrong. Pay attention to this. Okay, so in that sense, it's a gift, and it's totally natural. But what's important is that you don't, you don't ignore that light. Uh, and, 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 or that you think that the light is just part of the, the, the decoration of the dashboard. And that's what happens. Light goes on. Anger. And Paul says, that's fine. Be angry. Get hot. But don't sin. Don't go to bed with that. Don't ever get used to that. The purpose for that light is to finally fix the engine to turn it off. So anger is—don't is, uh, think of it as, as like, you shall not be angry— But rather, anger is something that it's not a stopping point. For a follower of Jesus, it can never be a stopping point. It rather is an indication that there's something for you to explore, to look into, so that you can get rid of it. What I found is this. The last 15 years, I have declared war on violence in my life. I have intentionally sought to purge my life of all violence. And, And in sweeping out all violence, I think I've pretty much swept out most of the anger with it. Because uh, anger is a form of violence. You're violating the worth of people. Um, but here's what I found, because I didn't name it. Anger is not, never something to hang on to. Because I didn't name it as something I want to get rid of in my life, I cut myself a lot of slack on anger and judgments. Uh, especially the last four years. Oh, this is just normal. This is, of course, yeah. And right now, it's it's pretty much focused uh, on politicians. You know, just, you see their face, it ticks you off. You hear them talk, it ticks you off. It gets mad. We live in anger. And um, see, I've been giving myself a pass on that. And that's, what, what this message means to me is no more of that. Uh, Jesus is saying, get serious about your inner world. Those, you think it's those little judgments? Oh, that's just, everyone says you fool, you idiot. Yeah, everyone, yeah, of course. Who can't, who, how can you not look down on those, those, those people over there who believe those stupid things? And when we just excuse it. We excuse it, and all the while that murdering is going on in our heart. And maybe yeah, we never do it in our life. But it keeps us from walking down the kingdom road of likeness. Okay, uh, I'll say, uh, just uh, answer a few little quick what abouts, and then I'm going to give a a closing kind of exercise here. What about? Some of you hearing this, you might have been thinking, well, wait a minute. God gets angry. God gets angry. What about that? Um, If God gets angry, clearly it's okay to get angry. In fact, maybe we're godly when we're angry. Maybe. But on the other hand, God gets to do a lot of things that we don't get to do, right? Uh, God gets to inspire worship. We should never do that for ourselves or even try. Uh, And God gets to judge, but we don't get to judge because God can judge justly and God can judge lovingly, but we can't. God's got his role to play. We've got our role to play. In fact, the Bible tells us explicitly Romans 12 uh, tells us to leave all vengeance to God, Uh, leave room for God's wrath, put off all vengeance. That's all urge to retaliate, all urge to get even. Let go of all debts. You owe me. Get rid of that. Leave it all. Trust that God will take care of it in the end. Whoever needs to get judged will get judged. All wrongs will be right. Trust God to do that. Our job is not to take any of that to ourselves. Don't exact vengeance. Not even in your heart. Not even your thoughts. Leave it all to God. So God gets to do it. We can't. And I guess if that's a problem, you just got to get over it. Second thing is that, what about Jesus cleansing the temple? That's always used as the example uh, Uh, When people want to justify their violence or justify their anger, this is the passage you go to. It's all four Gospels. Jesus cleanses the temple. Several things about that. Number one, this is not a temper tantrum that Jesus is involved in here. He didn't walk in there and all of a sudden get, blow his cork. No, this was, he he went out and made a whip, okay? It was intentionality. There's... and he didn't use that whip on people. And it doesn't even say he used that whip on animals. He cracked the whip to cause a stampede. That's how, you, that's how people who deal with animals have always caused a stampede or to get them going in a certain direction. You crack the whip. So he's creating chaos by cracking the whip. But it doesn't say he was angry and it certainly doesn't say he was violent. But let's assume he was angry. Maybe there was a righteous indignation there. Uh, it could be because, see, here's the thing. Jesus is en- engaging what's called polit- or, or, or prophetic theater. Uh, you see this a lot in the Old Testament when they act out prophecies. In fact, he's been engaged in pro- uh, pro- uh, prophetic theater since he rode into Jerusalem on those two donkeys, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9. And there's all these, these, these parallels that you find with the Old Testament where Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies in this Holy Week. It culminates with Jesus coming to the temple, and this fulfills the prophecy that the Lord, at, at, at a certain time in the future, is going to judge his people, going to come and cleanse his temple, and ultimately bring destruction upon the temple. And Jesus is now, what he's doing is he's putting himself in that place. He is declaring himself, and this is why he got crucified, that he is Yahweh come to cleanse the temple. Now, whether he was angry or not, it doesn't matter. Because even if he was angry, that's God's prerogative. And here Jesus is standing in the place of God. But I wouldn't look at that as a good example for you to be standing in. And besides, Jesus is the one sinless person on the planet who doesn't have to take out the beam in his own eye before he sees a speck in someone else's. For the rest of us, we've got to do the plank exercise. So, so it, it, yes, it's true. Jesus may have been angry in the temple cleansing, but not as not, not, not an example for human beings, but as a display of him fulfilling the prophecy of God. Finally, uh, uh, what about Jesus confronting the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Because he uses some pretty strong language there. Viper, white and hypocrites. Sounds pretty bad, pretty harsh. And when you hear those words, you, you, you know, there's no tone that's given to us in, the, in, in, in Scripture, so you've got to kind of fill it in with your imagination. I think most of us, when we, when we hear that, we hear like Jesus saying, you hypocrites, you scoundrels, you white sepulchers, you're just nasty, blind leaders of the blind! you know, just mad as all get out. But here's where it's so important that we interpret everything that Jesus is about through the lens of the cross, because ultimately it's all about the cross. It all heads up and culminates in the cross. Remember that, yeah, Jesus is giving some strong words here, but this is the same Jesus that died for these guys a couple days later at their hands. Jesus loves these folks. He's come to die for these folks. And when you, when you hear those words in that light, I, I, I just hear something different. It's, yeah, Jesus is using strong words. But the reason I think he's using strong words is because he loves these folks, and they're in a desperate spot. It, it, when you're blinded by religious self-righteousness, you are in the darker spot. You can get it. The enemy's got you big when you're that far gone that you think you're more righteous than people. And so, Jesus, with all the other sinners of the world, he he treats them with grace and love and respect and all the rest. Why is it that that with these religious leaders, he all of a sudden looks like he comes uncorked? I think it's because he's trying to wake them up. He's trying to shock them. The the, the gracious approach won't work with these folks because they interpret his grace as liberalism. Oh, he's got grace. He hangs out with prostitutes and all the rest. And so they judge that stuff. It won't work with these folks. So he's trying to like shock them into waking up. You guys, you're in a desperate situation. But I don't think we need to see him as being angry there, trying to retaliate or anything. No, this is desperate love, calling on the beloved to wake up. So, the question I want to end with is just this What do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? And I want us here, all of us, to just for a moment and imagine yourself, if you can, what does it look like for you to have the chains of anger broken, to lose all anger? And see, I, I want to locate. What you think you have to lose because that's, that's what causes us to resist this. We feel like we're going to lose something important if we say yes to this message. For some folks, it might feel like if, if you say yes to this message, if you get rid of your anger, it, it, it might feel like you're losing power. Something about the adrenaline of anger, it makes you feel like you've got some control over your life, some power over your life. And see, here's the thing. There's a, there's a time where you might need that. The purpose for anger, it, it, your medulla gets activated, and, and it's your fight or flight reflex. It's a short-term thing. There's times when you need to get big. You confront a bear out in the forest or a lion or whatever. Yeah, you need to get bigger. You need to run fast. I'm told getting big is the better option. Uh, but is that the kind of power that we're supposed to live on? Trying to be big enough to confront something? Is that, is that a Jesus-looking power? I don't think it is. That kind of power is the power over power over others. It's not a, the power of the cross, the power that comes under others, and that changes them from the inside out. For others of you, you, when, you, when, you for other, uh, when, when we think about getting rid of anger, maybe one concern is that it, it feels like you don't care then. If I'm not angry, well then I don't care. Uh, you're angry because wrongs are being done. Injustice is being done. And, and, and you can have a conviction that, and I totally understand this, that you ought to be angry. You ought to be enraged when you see this injustice. If more righteous people would be enraged, then maybe we'd change this thing. And until more righteous people are enraged, it's not going to change. And so some folks might hear this to say that Man, if you're telling folks, if you're telling white folks not to be angry, well, that's the wrong message they need to hear because they need to get more angry. You're, not, you're just acquiescing to injustice then. So what do you have to lose if you say farewell to anger? For some people, it's well you lose your righteous indignation, and that feels to them like that's a godly impulse to fight injustice, righteous indignation. We must win over these evil doers, and I hear that, and I empathize with it, and I think that's why I resisted this message for so long. But is it true? Is it true? Yes, it's anger in the moment, natural. Natural. You see that? And that just should cause you to be enraged. But the question is, do you marry that? Do you partner with that? Is, is this not what you're going to run on to confront injustice? I, I, just try this on. In fact, try this on for the lunch. Just try this on. What if all anger was something I'm supposed to be getting rid of before sundown? All right? Just clear the slate. Of all forms of anger. What, what happens when you do that? Now, so as I, as I run this, let me just run this out in my mind here. I will confess to you that I, like many of you, probably most of you, when George Floyd was killed, there I, I was enraged. I was absolutely enraged. I was enraged at Chauvin. I was enraged at this pattern of this history that's going on for so long. And I—, I, I I was enraged at the police force that doesn't do I don't think a good enough job. Things are changing now, thankfully, but good enough job vetting officers. Are they psychologically the kind of people that you'd want on the police force? And then of training officers and, and confronting their own bias and things like that. They gotta do a way better job at that, because people's lives are at stake. So I was really angry. That was a natural thing in the moment. Now do I partner with that? Am I still angry? What happens if I let go of that? Do I lose anything? And so when I confess, when I first remember that I have been a murderer and an adulterer, and that's, well, those are just two of the sins that I've done most of my life, and that, that is the same as murder and adultery. When I, when I realize that, and I, I, I let go of my right to judge anybody or to, be, to feel superior to anybody, and I surrender all of that to God, do I lose that urge, that impulse to say, this is wrong, we've got to change this? And the answer is no, I don't. I don't lose any of that. I just lose the anger. See, I'm angry because, I'm angry because of, of, I, I, I have compassion towards the black community that's been oppressed throughout this history. And, and, and I, I, I have sorrow for the state that they've been in and have been in for such a long time. And I have grief over that. And I have love for them. And that love and that sorrow and that compassion, well, that's why I'm angry. But if I lose the anger, I haven't lost this. No, this is still there. And that is, that's the fuel that I need to confront this. Getting someone angry without getting them to have that, that connectedness, that's not going to do you any good in the long run. They've got to have a connectedness, a compassion, a love, and a grief. And that's what we're looking for. I, I really believe that, that whatever we think we're getting by anger, we can get by love and by grief and sorrow and compassion better. I find that when I can put off my anger, I—, I I now see things a little differently. I don't—I have the same passion, same urgency, I haven't lost any of that, but when I lose the anger, I can now see—I have a broader focus. Paul says this, that—he says that, the, that our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers of this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is never against flesh and blood. It's never about a person. Um, if there's if, if it's a person involved, well, that's not someone we're supposed to be fighting. That's not our enemy. That's someone we're supposed to be fighting for. And that's how we push back on the powers, the principalities and powers and rulers that Paul talks about. They're always trying to get us to play off each other, so that we're shooting at each other instead of shooting at them. And they love death and destruction. They come only to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what, that's what they do. And so if it's flesh and blood, it's someone that we're, we're to be loving, someone we're to be fighting for. They're not the enemy. Now, I find that when I'm angry, flesh and blood is always the enemy. Anger is directed towards the flesh and blood. When I can let go of that and leave all judgment to God, God will take care of that. And God uses means of different ways of doing that. But when I let go of that, now I, I'm not as focused on flesh and blood. Now my heart, I, my compassion, my grief, my love goes to flesh and blood. But the resistance goes to the powers. Goes to the powers. Um, so it doesn't make it any less urgent to let go of anger. It just broadens our perspective. So now that I can see, when I, when I let go of the anger, now I'm able to see how I, I, I'm fighting now, not just for those who are oppressed, but also for those who are the oppressors, because they themselves are oppressed. They're all, we're in bondage to these principalities and powers that are laughing their way all the way to the bloody bank as they get us to play off against one, one another. And the main way they do it, I mean, is what if this is the case? What if the main way that the enemy uses us, to overguess one another, to kill one another, is by f- getting us to feel justified having righteous indignation and living in that. By the way, this was Martin Luther King's philosophy to a nutshell. Uh, Don't march, he would say, unless you are marching not only for your own freedom but for the freedom of those who oppress you because until all are free, uh, no one's free. Don't march if you've got darkness in your heart because darkness will never all drive out light. Light can, alone can drive out darkness. And so light means you operate with love, not hatred, not hostility, not anger, not slander, no, not, none of that. Martin Luther King had it. And how we need, it, how we need that spirit today. Oh, I, how we need that voice today, that message today. Whatever you think anger is going to get you, I submit to you that if you leave all, all that to God, uh, y- y- your, your, your solidarity with folks, your, your, your grief, your love, your sorrow— that will get you there better. I, I'll, I'll just close with this. Um, two last words. One is, don't hear this message just saying, don't be angry, don't be angry. Because, see, that would result in people like trying to press out your anger. Like, okay, I'm not angry. Don't. Never pretend like they're not angry when you're angry. In fact, some folks here need to get permission to be angry because all your life you've been told, don't be angry. And some women need to hear that. Uh, you need that warning light on your dashboard to work. And you've been told all your life, no, uh, nice people don't, have, don't ever get that dashboard lit up. No, the dashboard's going to get lit up. It's a warning sign. Something's wrong. And some of you need to have permission to say something's wrong. <laughs> Address that. Just don't marry it. Don't, 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 don't bond with it. Don't partner with that to think that that's uh, the energy that you're supposed to live off of. So, so it's not about don't be angry. It's rather about use anger as a warning sign to check out, to ultimately get rid of it. The one way to be angry, not sin, is to get rid of it as soon as possible. Second thing I'll just say is this. I know this is not easy. It's easy to say. Actually, it's not easy to say. For some of my life I've ever said this. But it, it's not easy when, when and I'm talking from my gut here. When, When you see someone you love being hurt by someone else Persistently, chronically, uh, anger is a natural response because something you value is being devalued. But you can't live in that; it's cancer. If it, if it becomes para orge, it, 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 I don't care how justified it is, how righteous it feels; it, it, it it's it's cancer. Can I call on us this Lent to fast from anger? Just let's let's, let's try that on. Let's try that on. Uh, what if, in fact, I did a daily scan to say, do I have anger towards anyone for any reason? And then I committed to getting rid of that before nightfall. Will you, can, we, can we embark on this? I think this is just huge. I've always talked about how we need to be purging violence from our life. I really think this is just getting consistent with this. Because the anger, the insult is a subtle form of violence. It's violating the worth of others. What it is to live and follow Jesus means that we are aspiring to be have a righteousness that's not just defined externally, but that's defined internally. And the love of God alone can bring us there. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Are you holding on to any anger? Take that to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit work. Do what he wants to do. Let go of it. Let go of it. I'm finding this. It's a very freeing experience. There's a lot of other questions we can ask. We'll talk more about this next week. But, uh, um, yeah, so tune into that. We'll talk more about the relationship side of this and, and have some therapists here to talk about all of that. But this week, let go of the anger. Let go of the anger. Let it be done. Uh, before I close with a little benediction, I would like to invite you uh, at the end of this service in about two minutes, uh, if you would like some prayer. We've got prayer rooms. People would love to pray with you. Rob just told you about how we've got them blessed with an abundance of prayer warriors. So take advantage of them. Don't carry that, that burden, whatever it is. Don't carry it on your own. And maybe it's an anger issue you want to work through a little bit. Uh, or maybe something totally unrelated. Uh, we have the Muse cast on, on Tuesdays to go deeper into the message, and we also have our gathering groups, which I encourage everyone to take a part of, to stay connected as much as possible during this, this lockdown period of time. Lord, as we leave this place, can we do it, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, empower us to be people who are aware of how acclimated we've come to our own anger. Wake us up to the ways that we've just giving ourselves passes to entertain thoughts and have attitudes that are not at all consistent with the kingdom. Forgive us, Lord God, our short-sightedness and our wrongdoing in the past. Empower us to make changes that result in us being more perfect reflections of your perfect love to all people at all times and all situations. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, it's kind of you can say it louder than that. Oh, I just love it. Yeah, I can hear the, the walls are just thundering right here. Okay, that's good. It won't be long. It won't be long. Hang in there. We'll get together soon. God bless you guys. Later.